Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT. Because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises. From the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer. Which is why no matter what line of work you're in, They've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Coming up on the episode today, Michael Wolf has been writing about Donald Trump for, what, four years now? Uh, you may remember his first book, Fire and Fury, was the one that prompted uh, Donald Trump to insist he was a very stable genius. Then he wrote Siege, which took us into the, the dark depths of the middle of the presidency. Well, he's got a new book out. It's called Landslide, and it chronicles the final days of Donald Trump's uh, presidency. Uh, And that extraordinary moment, the the march on the Capitol. And in a strange twist, given how much they fell out at the beginning, Michael Wolff ended up sitting down with Donald Trump at Mar-a-Lago. So I've got an interview with uh, Michael Wolff coming up uh, on the episode. It's a properly fascinating listen, if uh, slightly terrifying. Uh, But first is the columnist panel. It's Thursday, so it must be night at the Marriott. It's India Night and James Marriott. So let's talk about our favourite food and how the government is going to try and take it off of us, apparently. Uh, this uh, review from Henry Dimbleby calling for sugar and salt tax um, to try and divert us all into eating uh, better food. India, will this work? How many times are we told that we need to eat? Uh, is, is it a problem that we don't know that we shouldn't be eating this stuff or there are other forces at work? I think the main force at work in terms of sugar, certainly salt, salt, I think, is more to do with um, junk food and ready meals. The problem with sugar is that we associate it with uh, rewards and treats. And this starts really, really, really early in childhood. You know, you've been a good boy, have a sweetie. And that link, once that link is made, it's very difficult to break. And I think if we could somehow get to the point where sweet things and puddings and pastries and chocolate bars weren't a form of rewarding ourselves, then we would have a much kind of saner relationship with them. So I think the kind of psychological aspect of it needs to be taken into account because without it, you will never get away from the fact that people have sweet teeth 
that sounds weird, sweet teeth, sweet tooths, um, <laughs> and, 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 um, and, and that kind of sugar craving is very, very hard to kick. It's an, I think, you know, sugar is addictive. It's kind of an addiction, sugar. So just kind of banning people outright or making it more difficult or more expensive, which will, of course, disproportionately affect poorer people who um, are fatter, generally, um, is 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 kind of three quarters right, but there needs to be extra stuff on top. And also this report doesn't mention um, the very fattening effect of refined carbohydrates, i.e. white stodge, which turns into stodge on your body, basically. Um, James, what do you think about that? Because I was, I was sort of thinking about um, uh, it's partly reward. So if you if something's gone, I mean, I'm basically thinking of my own eating habits. If something's gone well, you sort of reward yourself with a drink or a nice meal. If, you, if something's gone badly, you mm. com- commiserate yourself with uh, some wine and a nice meal. Uh, if you're very tired, then you probably want to do nothing more than just have some wine and a nice meal. Uh, so you could basically find a reason to justify um, eating badly all the time. That's basically what I do. I think so, yeah. Well, I mean, I have actually, my, my personal diet strategy, uh, if listeners of Times Radio are interested, they're maybe not, is Friday's treat day. So Friday is my day for uh, filled pasta. If I eat as much filled pasta on Friday as I can, then I think that sort of um, seems to... Uh, is that it? What, like fresh pasta? You know, the, pa- yeah, pa- I'm obsessed with it. It's like my favourite And that's your treat on a Friday? Yeah. It's really nice. I wouldn't call filled pasta a sort of filthy vice to be indulged Oh, it is. In. It's really <laughs> bad. Um, Do you eat it while you're in the bath? No, that's a wonderful <laughs> idea, and I think I probably will this Friday. Next time there's a big football match, I'm going to sit in the bath with my filled pasta, dead to the world. Um... <laughs> A terrifying <laughs> mental image for <laughs> listeners. Um, no, but I just wanted to say that I think I, I think I sort of um, disagree with India a bit because I think um, I think the obesity crisis. I think the thing that we have to grasp about it is that it's not a. I don't think it's a matter of personal psychology or willpower. I think it is this kind of structural problem, and I think this report sounds great. I mean, it's very. Um, it was very. It was very Jamesy, and it's like. Um, sort of big ideasiness it'll always get a bit overexcited by these things i love the ideas of robots in fields picking weeds um and completely behind the idea of a sugar tax and i think these this is probably the only way to fix the problem um and i think we'd be amazed at the effect that those structural changes can have and i also think the sort of interesting stuff reading around it the fact that um childhood obesity although it's stable that stability is because it's increasing in poor children but reducing in rich children means that Evidently, we have this evidence that there are aspects that the obesity crisis is something. It's not this inevitable progress. There are clearly people doing things uh, to reduce it, and maybe it'll just take this sort of big government intervention to end it. Because it is, it is crazy. It's um, is it one in? Is it the majority of adults are now overweight and sort of is it a th- three in ten are obese or something? It's, these are just absolutely, you know, this is just like unprecedented in, hum- in human history. And I think the scale of these plans is completely, you know, it's completely kind of commensurate um, to the problem. And it seems, um, India, as if uh, the government is having another one of its sort of contortions as to where, you know, it's, where its ideological position uh, lies. In that uh, they're now suddenly coming over all libertarian again. You know, mm. George, George used to saying he will carefully consider the conclusions and respond with a white paper within six months, which doesn't feel like they're uh, uh, grasping it too tightly. Um, uh, Robert Jenrick was very much playing it down this morning. Uh, on Times Radio, saying so you have to think carefully before you approach policies like that. Um, and, you know, so you go back to the old libertarian argument, leaving people to do what they want, you know, but then we're also having an argument about face masks and, you know, the government was has been telling us about exactly how to live our lives right down to when we can leave the house and what is and isn't a necessary journey and all that sort of thing. So the, this is a government which has been willing, in the name of public health, to 
take quite an interventionist approach, but doesn't mm. seem to uh, want to do it on this. Well, no, because you can see how um, wildly unpopular these proposals would be with various sections of society and other sections of society that always get it in the neck. You know, it reminds me of <coughs> people with giant tellies, people sneering at poorer families with giant tellies. And actually, the reason they've got a giant telly is because a giant telly is their only entertainment. So, you know, you can argue that the reason people go to the chippy and buy cans of giant two litre bottles of fluorescent fizzy drinks and and uh, give their children chocolate bars is that because there isn't anything else very nice going on in their lives. So it's really hard. And those are the people, uh, particularly in the north, who, you know, are new 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 converts to, to to Boris Johnson so it's a very kind of delicate thing it's all very well to say in a middle class way everybody should eat brown rice and miso and organic eggs but you know and also of course there's the question of cookery lessons which I think really are, are really really important and ought to come into it um, and the idea that you know anything to do with cookery domestic science feeding yourself is kind of a silly side subject. And, you know, on Friday we make scones and take them home. And people need to be, children need to be taught properly how to how to be able to feed themselves. It's a, it's a really kind of basic, basic thing. And I think the, the shunting, to, I mean, they do exist again, cookery lessons in schools since about 2014, but the shunting, the, the, the shunting to the side of them for at least one generation was a disaster because people literally can't feed themselves and they're tired, they've been working, they get home, they want something to eat that's going to be instantly satisfying or provide, fill and fill, immediately fill a craving. And so they eat rubbish. But, you know, you can't entirely blame them and you can't entirely penalise them. You need to be a bit clever about it. But generally, I think the recommendations are great. But then I would say that because I'm not the people I've just described. And I think that, well, there's also an interesting point which I think was being made on uh, Times Radio Breakfast this morning is that... Uh, on the one hand, they want the tax. Basically, the idea is you want the companies to reformulate uh, the food that they make or they have to pay the tax. And then he's hypothecating the tax would go to sport and all that sort of thing. But if the companies reformulate, you don't get any of the money. So it's not totally... Because what mm. we've seen with a lot of fizzy drinks is when they brought in the... When George Osborne brought in the, uh, the sugar tax on fizzy drinks, mm -hmm. lots of them did just take the sugar out of their... Uh, of, of their drinks. I think there was a big rant about, was it Iron Brew? People said it didn't Iron taste Brew, yeah. People said it didn't taste the same. Anyway, let's not get start, get bogged down in that because the last time I mentioned something on air a lot, somebody sent us a box of Twixes, uh, which I, <laughs> I only treat myself and have one on a Friday, James, like you, uh, but not in the bath. Uh, James, I want to talk about the column um, that you've written today about how um, you think that the binds, that the, 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 the ties that bind us are breaking down. Yes, I, I, yeah, I do. Um, this, I guess, is another sort of thing, uh, another sort of problem that I sort of think is um, that people people talk a lot about uh, the loneliness epidemic, and I guess like the obesity epidemic, I think it's something we tend to think of as sort of a personal individual problem, but is actually a sort of uh, structural problem in society. And the basic argument of my column was that the idea of a loneliness epidemic makes us think of this sort of thing passing through society, but actually... I think um, these amazing statistics about loneliness that were reported last week by the think tank onward, I think um, the number of young people saying they have either one or fewer than one close friend has tripled in the last decade. Trust in strangers is declining. Uh, trust in family is declining. Um, these things aren't this sort of isolated phenomenon that's just suddenly arrived. I think they're quite deeply rooted uh, in the way society is structured and, and the history of society. So... Um, just, I mean, one of the things I was mentioning in the column, which I think is a crucial part of the loneliness epidemic, is um, how mobile the population of um, 
of our country and most Western countries is. We take it for granted that we'll move around for jobs, we'll move cities. It's quite normal in, in, in the UK and America. It's almost a rite of passage that you'll move away from university. 80% of students in the UK move away from university. And I... And, um, Moving to a new place is basically one of the most important uh, predictors of social disconnection. You sort of wipe all your social networks and you start over again. Uh, there are studies that show that when you move country, um, immigrants who move to another country never recover the same depth and complexity of social networks. And I think that's just one thing that's a feature of our society and it's part of how society works that I, I, I don't know that we'd necessarily want to lose um, it's a sort of freedom that, you know, gives rise to enormous loneliness. Um, and sorry, just one sort of one other thing on that point is talking to, I spoke to the column, I was speaking to um, uh, Oxford anthropologist Robin Dunbar, Robin Dunbar, who's an expert on friendship. And he says that a lot of, um, he thinks a lot of what's picked up by these sort of surveys of loneliness is the, is the, is the misery of um, elder, isolated elderly people. And then the other end, uh, isolated young people who have moved away from home for the first time uh, to new cities to find jobs and, um, I guess that's just, you know, that kind of, that's just part of the fact that we probably want to move cities to move jobs. That's a great freedom to have, but it's just part of the way our society is structured that makes us lonely. And I think a lot of these kind of, you know, the ideas of a loneliness epidemic maybe reduces the problem a bit and doesn't acknowledge how deeply rooted it is in the way that we live, basically. What do you think about this? I've thought for a while that social media actually, it's quite good at keeping you in touch with people that you know. But in fact, there was a story yesterday or the day before about how people were using dating apps to meet new mm-hmm. friends. But it doesn't; it's not a very good way of keeping of you meeting new people. And I know from yeah. uh, um, having seen this with sort of uh, teenagers that I know, you know, they they have this very sort of close knit group of friends who are all in the same WhatsApp or Snapchat group or whatever. But they don't sort of they don't particularly go out and socialise. They, you know, they they don't drink as much. They go out as much. Uh, but as a result, you don't meet any new people. You can still yeah. keep, so you can keep having that chat in your social media groups, but you're not meeting a friend of a friend in a bar or a club or whatever it might be. So I think this is I think I think that's the absolutely crucial thing, and it's the thing I wished I'd been able to get into my column because uh, talking again to this guy Robin Dunbar. We're doing it again. We're rewriting your column live on air. I know. I wish you'd stop doing this to me. Can we? Maybe we should do this the day before my column. That would and make then more I can go sense. Go right after this. Yeah. He he was saying the basic the basic problem with um, social media um, is that um basically as a hu- forming social connections as a human is this like enormously complex thing he spent his career studying this and he says it takes you know just tens and tens and tens and tens and thousands of hours of practice to become a normally functioning so- um, social human being he says most people achieve that about the age of 25 i, I think i'm still waiting um <laughs> but um basically the more time you spend away on your on your on your phone um, you're just not developing any of those, that vast panoply of social skills that you need to navigate. I mean, he says, um, you know, human social networks, the sort of most complicated thing in the universe. And the more we take huge swathes of practice out of um, enjoying those things and interacting with them, um, you know, that's the, he thinks that's the main damage of screens and social media, basically, which is kind of what you said. Yeah, no, that's an interesting. What, what do you think, Idia? I think everything has become so complicated. I mean, you see, I I agree completely about social media. Social media creates these completely synthetic intimacies that people really are emotionally invested in and believe in and believe that these are proper, nourishing, serious, strong friendships. And, you know, nine times out of ten, they aren't really. And as you say, meeting a friend of a friend in a pub or whatever is likely is, is, is much more is much more fulfilling, I think. And I think also in terms of relationships, you know, I'm constantly amazed and saddened by how complicated younger people find uh, having relationships with 
people of partner relationships, I mean, not friend relationships. Um, that also seems to have become really, really just such a complicated tangle. And I think that is because people know so few people in real life that when you are looking for a partner, you're not, whereas, I don't know, 50 years ago, even 10 years ago, actually, you'd have just been looking for a partner to be a partner. You're now looking for the partner to be everything, to play the role of about six people, to be your best friend and to be like a really great colleague and to be your lover and to be quite parental and to be, you know, so it's all jumbled up. And so relationships are a mess and people find them difficult. It makes me really glad that I'm old. <laughs> and doing the crossword, India. Like an old person, but doing the crossword. <laughs> to be clear, I'm not calling you old. I just want to be absolutely clear. For the benefit of the tape, I'm not calling you old. That was entirely I your I don't mind being called but old. Um, let's just, uh, let's uh, talk about just quickly about crosswords and how uh, we could we might live longer if we do the Times cryptic crossword. I've been doing various, any, any kind of word game um, uh, for years and years and years and the absolute conviction that it's going to save me from Alzheimer's, which my father developed and which was just the most horrendous thing ever so now there's a yet another piece of research um out of a university in chicago um which says that keeping your brain active crosswords being a really brilliant example uh it's not, it's not necessarily going to stave off alzheimer's but it means that your brain will deteriorate more slowly and keep ticking over properly for longer so yeah word games marvelous you a big word game fan no, I, I, I think I always think I, crosswords should be my thing, but I think I'm too stupid to do them. I've gotten to <laughs> Sudoku's and Tetris are my two. Uh, I didn't Tetris improve your memory, probably not. Are you, so I went to a stage of doing Sudoku on 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 a train into work. Uh, was it, the Independent might have been the first ones to start sort of really running Sudoku. So was I, it the Times? I think the Sudoku's might be a Times. Well, I was thing, reading the Independent wrong. at the time. I think it was around Ooh. the time the Times turned me down for the graduate training <laughs> scheme, and I was refused to have anything to do with them. <laughs> but no, I've never. But it's not. They're a bit samey, aren't they, Sudoku's? I mean, it is, it is basically... It is the same numbers every week in yeah. a load of squares, but... Uh, yeah. Mix it up with some different numbers. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's lovely to speak to you as ever. Uh, India, get back to your, your crossword. And uh, James, run yourself a deep bath and fill it with pasta or whatever it is you're planning to do for the evening. <laughs> India Knight and James Mount there. Of course, you can read them both in The Times and The Sunday Times. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is my interview with Michael Wolfe. 
the first time he threatened to sue you and said you're a total loser who made up stories in order to sell this really boring and untruthful book. And by the end of the third book, you're sitting in Mar-a-Lago chewing the fat with him. How, how on earth does that happen? How does it, explain how that happens and what that tells us about, about the man, Donald Trump. You know, I can't explain the logic of this, but I can explain the sequence. I, I had a number of people around the president who I had been, have been speaking to, well, since the first book, uh, knew I was planning this third book, and they told him. But when he was told, then as the story was related to me, he said the following. He said, that guy gets ratings. Let's see him. Um, so I was immediately invited to come to Mar-a-Lago to see the to see the um, former president and um, to sit down with sit down with him, interview him as long as I wanted, um, and then in fact I have dinner with him. So I found myself in March in Mar-a-Lago as surprised as anybody. I suppose in a normal situation, if you were writing a book about a senior politician. Uh, getting time with that senior politician as a sort of first-hand witness would be the, you know, that's striking gold, if you like, rather than piecing it together from those around them. But how how reliable a witness is Donald Trump to the events of Donald Trump? He is the most unreliable witness there could possibly be. Um, and, um, you know, for a, a host of reasons, including that he's an inveterate liar, but even beyond that, and I think, and I think more importantly, um, he lives in his own own reality. So he's constantly um, construing reality to his needs, um, and, and with without relevance to um, to external empirical um, facts and data. There's a really interesting bit in the I think it's in the first chapter in the book where you talk about how normal. Uh, professional uh, politicians, observers of politics, journalists, sometimes to try and make sense of Donald Trump, project onto him logic, strategy, a plan, uh, because that's what you think happens in politics, that, that clever people do clever things. Yeah, you even think if that, you're a bad guy. That, I mean, they might be bad, so they, but they, you know, they might be bad at doing it, or they might be pursuing bad ends, but there's a plan and you're but they're all politicians and and politics is ultimately about cause and effect and everybody everybody or most everybody funnels donald trump into that framework that logical framework and your argument is we're wrong to do that and part of the reason why we do that is because we don't like to think possibly that somebody who's just crazy ends up as the president of the united states of america but in point of fact, someone who is just crazy, not just crazy, grandly crazy, absolutely deranged, has ended up as the president of the United States. And someone without interest in, interest in politics, policy, government, management. So any of, of, the, of the disciplines, we essentially credit Donald Trump with um, having or being, being interested in. None of that is is true. He is interested only in um, the adulation of the crowd and the sound of his own voice. And, and the picture you paint of people who sort of come in and out of his orbit, some of them quite smart people, and they get quite close and they think, wow, I'm not having anything to do with this. I'm going to go back to 
you know, my job. And so as a result, the clever ones get in and get out. And the ones who stay, you end I think at one point it, it was described as like the Star Wars canteen bar, where it's just a sort of collection of oddballs still hanging out in the Oval Office. If you've watched the West Wing <laughs> or even frankly Veep, uh, you get an idea of sort of smart people going from room to room and doing stuff. Paint the picture of what's really going on in a, in the Donald Trump Oval Office as you. Well, yeah, it. I mean, uh, you know, I think and there, there's a story early in the book about about Karl Rove and, and the president has gotten some weird idea in, in his in his head sort of rather late in the campaign, which was that the Democrats are not going to nominate Joe Biden. They're going to replace Joe Biden with um, Andrew Cuomo and Michelle Obama. Uh, and, and, and so, so Trump is in a big kerfluffle about, about this because um, he's scared against run, running against these, uh, these, these people. And um, among the things he won't do, he, st- he, he won't attack Joe Biden. Everybody in the campaign is like, well, well what do you mean? We got to, you know, we got to make a move here. We got to attack this guy. We're going to be running against him. He won't do it. So they call in uh, the 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 ultimate strategist in the Republican Party, Karl Rove. And in fact, this is during the pandemic and, and, and Rove is in Texas and he's saying, well, I don't want to come to, to Washington. But they they beg him, no, the president needs you. The party needs you. Um, we need you to sit down with the president and tell him that this is that this is crazy. I mean, you know, this is a super secret meeting. We need you to do this. So Rove comes to Washington, walks into the Oval Office, and there are 15 people there. Rove, who's uh, who spent eight years, you know, within um, uh, within a few inches of, of the of the Oval Office, who understands that that what happens in the Oval Office, this is the pinnacle of seriousness in government. Um, and he thinks, who are these people? He doesn't even know what they're doing there. And that's basically the Oval Office at any given time, people coming and going, um, hanging out. Everybody is invited, uh, not least of all, because Trump can't be alone. He just, he just has to have people. Crucially, he just seems to just, just want people there who will listen to him. That's the, that's the, the, the main a, that's the main well, purpose. If anyone yes, I mean, clearly he is never listening to anyone else. Um, never. Um, so, yes. So it's just it's just the sound of his of his own voice. Reality in this White House is very circumscribed and it takes place only within the sound of his own voice. Obviously, the uh, the background to the election campaign was the pandemic. Uh, Trump got very well. He, he caught coronavirus himself and was ill. But then, lots of people around him were ill too. The the White House was as dangerous as a nursing home. Wow! And what I impact mean, essentially, did that have? almost everybody got it, and then they were always blaming someone else for giving it to the, to them, including including Trump, who blamed Chris Christie, the former governor of New Jersey for giving him COVID. And what impact did that have on an already dysfunctional situation in a time when actually you really want government to step up? Uh, you already had a dysfunctional government of just odd oddballs hanging out in the Oval Office and then suddenly COVID rips through it. What what was going on behind the scenes uh, well, during that period? It, I mean, it's catastrophic. It was obviously catastrophic for the management of the of the of the pandemic. Um, but it was also catastrophic for um, for um, uh, Trump's reelection campaign, probably one of the most haphazard, capricious um, and incompetent 
campaigns that a sitting president has ever run. You know, and certainly that was that was part of the of the issue. Everybody got sick. But on top of that, it was the 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 even overriding issue was that the president is is what uh, is the ultimate dec- decider of about everything. And he's a complete incompetent. And at one point, he even suggested using the pandemic as an excuse to indefinitely postpone the election. Uh, Actually, on two occasions that I know of, um, um, he he proposed this to be met by incredulity of his um, of his aides and cohorts. I suppose there's something for that. And so uh, then uh, we sort of move through to the actual election, election night. There's a party in full swing in the White House, because obviously if you're still in the Trump camp, you think you're going to win because he wins everything. And then it suddenly it turns when they realise that isn't what's happening. But nobody obviously wants to tell him. Yeah, no, I mean, for the better part of a week, they basically try not to tell him. I mean, you cannot go to Donald Trump with bad news. He just he just doesn't accept it. When they ultimately did go, um, and there's a delegation. Um, so the election is on Tuesday the 3rd. On Saturday the 7th, there's a delegation that goes to tell him he's lost the election and he has to concede. And it's a, one of the kind of a funny gathering with everybody sort of pushing the other ahead, so, you know, out in front so, so that they'll um, that they have to deliver the news. And one of the guys who, who delivers the news uh, and they're supposed to say, you know, you cannot, it's over, it's done with. And then they anticipate him saying, what do you, um, uh, you know, what do you, what's our plan? And then they say, going to say, well, you have to concede. So that's what they go in thinking. But the guy who then is sort of pushed ahead to deliver the news kind of punts. And he doesn't say uh, you've lost. He says, he says there's less than a 5% chance that you can you can win. At which point, Donald Trump, who construes numbers in, in any way he wants to, um, says, oh, what are you talking about? 5%, there must be a 25% chance or 30% chance. So suddenly they, they instead of this being the off-ramp, they're suddenly, it's suddenly an on-ramp to fight for this 30 or 40, and it, and it keeps, um, keeps growing, chance that he can win the election. So that they all retreat, looking at each other, they're just dumbfounded. In, in his own mind, I mean, there, there, are, there are two givens. He cannot lose the election because he's running against Joe Biden. And it's inconceivable to him that he can lose an election to Joe Biden. Ergo, if he does lose this election, obviously it's stolen. So that night, election night, late, late that night, when, when things are, uh, have ceased to go as planned, and it looks, and it looks certainly, it's unclear what's going to happen yet, but it's certainly the possibility is that he can, he can lose. Um, there's Rudy Giuliani there telling him, we've got to say we won, because if we don't say we won, they'll steal it. So, in fact, he goes out and he says in his rambling weirdo speech on election night, This is a major fraud in our nation. We want the law to be used in a proper manner. So we'll be going to the U.S. Supreme Court. We want all voting to stop. We don't want them to find any ballots at 4 o'clock in the morning and add them to the list. Okay? It's, it's a very sad, 
It's a very sad moment. To me, this is a very sad moment. And we will win this. And we, as far as I'm concerned, we already have won it. So I just want to thank you. That now sets the stage. And um, when we roll into the, um, um, all, you know, all, all of the greater authorities calling this election for, for Joe Biden, it's, it's a, in his mind, a stolen election. The thing that struck me, well, two things struck me when you get to the sitting down with Trump at Mar-a-Lago. One is what a nightmare it must have been transcribing that conversation because it's incomprehensible in large. But, you know, in terms of sent- whole sentences that make a lot of sense, that was a just dealing with that is quite a thing. But you also try to really press him on who has stolen the election. What is the organisation? Who is the mastermind, the linchpin, the kingpin and all? And, he doesn't really have an answer to that. No, well, it was a funny thing because I knew and I basically had been told by the people around him, you know, if you go in there and challenge him and say, what do you mean the, the election was stolen? It's clear that it wasn't stolen. It, the conversation was going to end quite abruptly. So I thought about this and I thought, OK, I'll go. I'll go with let's just try to follow this logic out. And I was like, OK, if you won the election, how much did you win it by? Um and if it was stolen, that's a very complicated thing. So, uh, you know, a lot of bad guys must have been involved with 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 uh, with stealing it. Um, and he agreed. Yes, a lot of bad guys. And I said, who? Um, and he said, well, I'm not going to tell you now, but I, 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 I know. And, I'm, um, you know, when I'm ready to tell you, I'll I'll, I'll certainly let you know. Yeah, there was, it is extraordinary. And what is it like when you're trying to get sense out, out of him? Because it is just a stream of consciousness. And what are the... You know, you have just let it run in the book. So you get a real sense of you can hear his voice as you're reading it. But when you're trying to get something useful out of him, how do you cope with the, with a man who doesn't speak in proper sentences? You can't, you can't. You just have to accept that all you're going to get is the is what comes out of his his mouth, this kind of spray. And it doesn't really, frankly, matter who he's talking to. He's he's completely agnostic as to um, as to who is sitting in front of him. Um, so it's whatever is on his mind at that given moment. It comes out, and you just transcribe. But let's move forward then. So he's he's convinced that the election is it has been stolen uh, from him. Let's move forward to January the sixth. I'm not sure Brits totally appreciate this. But January the sixth now is just the shorthand in America for what happened uh, on the Capitol in the way that previously dates have been. You know, it's normally terror attacks and things like that that you get everyone knows what that date means the day that the trump supporters marched on the on the capitol building do you think he knew what he was doing when he said we're going to walk down and i'll be there with you we're going to walk down to the capitol and we're going to cheer on our brave senators and congressmen and women I, I do not. So I am unlike most other certainly liberal commentators who believe he had a a, 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 a plan here and he was he was leading an insurrection. Um, you know wh- what I know after having written three books. What I am absolutely sure of, having written three block three books about Donald Trump, is that there is never a plan. There is never a strategy. His mind is always in some other reality. And in fact, in this instance. At this moment, he was convinced that um, Mike Pence, the vice president, who has the ceremonial job of counting the electoral votes, 
the president believed that Mike Pence would could throw out these votes and make Donald Trump the president of the United States. <laughs> this was not only preposterous, but Mike Pence had told him time after time after time after time that he was not going to do this. This was not going to happen. And yet, at the same time, um, uh, right up until that day, that morning, in into as, as Mike Pence began to count uh, to count the votes in this ceremonial job, the president of the United States believed that um, that the vice president would do what had to be done so that Donald Trump and not Joe Biden would be the president installed as the president on January 20th. There was a great line in the book where, because Trump says we're going to walk down to the Capitol and you make the point that's not true because Donald Trump never walks anywhere. <laughs> so yeah. He literally, he literally in his mind doesn't walk anywhere. Those pictures were flashed around the world. America, this great democracy, having gone through this experiment of having such an unlikely character as president, then culminating in a deceit of democracy being attacked in that way. What what is the impact of that still in America? I you know, I mean it's it's a very, you know, a deeply polarizing event. And it becomes even more deeply polarizing because um because there has been a, a level of, of of Trump revisionism now that's been applied to this and um and, and that sort of mutates ev- every day but but the effect is oh you know it really wasn't wasn't that dangerous it really wasn't that dramatic the the, the liberals and the democrats have exaggerated this when in fact it was a um a, you know an, an an event that certainly no no one in washington an event the likes of which no one in washington had ever experienced is there a sense, I wonder, that, I mean, clearly there's sort of diehard Trump supporters, which counts for a big chunk of Repub- Republican vote, though not all of it. I wonder if there's a sense of Americans that, that acknowledging that Trump was so flawed is an acknowledgement that your system hasn't worked. That when the moment came, America chose someone, on the basis of your three books anyway, completely ill-suited to the highest office in the land. Um I, I, I guess you can also go the other way and say, uh, you know, this is democracy. You can choose anyone you want, even someone who is who is um, uh, uh, totally unfit for the job. That's the beauty of democracy. Anybody, you know, that old thing, anybody could be president. Well, it turns out apparently that's true if Donald Trump can be the president. But, I, you know, I mean, I mean having said that, no, it's an, it's an existential moment of, 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 um, of consideration here. Um, what does it mean that Donald Trump, two things, what does it mean that Donald Trump could have become president? And what does it mean that a vast portion of the country not only continues to support him, but continues to regard him with awe and adulation. What comes next then? Is there a fourth book? I mean, you know, book number four would sell well. Is that a book of him running again? Is it a book of him holed up in Mar-a-Lago, anointing all of the, the, the next generation of Trumpist Republicans? What's the, what's the next chapter of the, of the Trump story, do you think? Well, my existential crisis would come if I had to write a fourth book about this. Um, I, I am, um, I, I, you know, never say never, but I am done. Um, so, and I, and I hope Donald Trump is done. What, what's your sense, though? I mean, it's, it's the question that everyone wants to know the answer to, but, but I suspect that Trump doesn't yet know. But what's your sense? Is this a man who's 
ready to run again, to run the risk of not winning again or being the martyr? Does that suit him more? Remember, no plan, no strategy. So is it possible that he runs again? Yes, making the decision in the moment, standing before a crowd of 40,000 in a stadium, which the thing he really likes to do, which is really defines for him what being the president is. Um, and if he stands before that crowd two years from now and, and he feels he can get a response out of the crowd by saying he's running again, might he, well, he would certainly say then, yes, he's running again. Might he run even then per- perfectly capable of, 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 of reversing himself? So, I, I mean, the answer is, is it's, it's Donald Trump. There is, there is no way to anticipate what's going to happen here. The book is reviewers and journalists like me have had it for a few days. It's it's been out for a couple of days. Have you had an invite back to Mar-a-Lago yet? Have you had any word back from the, from the man himself as to what he thinks of this book? No, no. Uh, his um, his hapless spokesperson, who who is in you know he doesn't he has no real staff now. Um, so they sort of drafted this this hapless woman um, who seems totally shaken. Came out and said it was all lies, all lies. And in fact, knowing that he would say this, I was very careful before the book came out to supply his office with essentially a list of every every matter um, issue of fact in the book and. They were they went down the list. Accurate, 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 accurate. Maybe a little change here, which I changed. Um, uh, a, a dispute there, here and there, in which I made sure that I had multiple sources. But of course, Donald Trump says lies, lies, fake news. Well, if it, if it's any help, I got in touch with a couple of the people who, who've been in and around Donald Trump's orbit over the past few years, who I've uh, um, had contact with, and. Uh, one of them said that compared to the other authors, he's pretty darn accurate. I was impressed by the accuracy of much of Mr. Wolf's writing. So, you know, and that's that's people, you know, who describe themselves as certainly Trump cheerleaders, if not members of the team. So maybe maybe Donald Trump sometimes says things which are not entirely uh, accurate. Michael Wolf, it's been lovely to speak to you. Landslide, the final days of the Trump presidency is out now. It's a, it's a great read, if um, slightly terrified. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. <laughs> That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from? <laughs>